0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crime Crypt Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Elijah. Let's get into it. Yes, I missed last week. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Well, I did. I'm just lazy. Um, (laughs) I'm also a hypocrite because I hate when things are off schedule and I decided to just not go on schedule last week. But like I promised, we are doing the candy cabin murders this week, and I will try and do the Jack the Ripper case next week. But we are sticking on schedule now. I will not miss another weekend. That is it. If I miss another weekend, feel free to yell at me through the internet. I don't know. Uh, we have a note from D, our incredible information finder, and it reads, Note for listeners. I couldn't find much on this case for some reason. Eli and I found that Wikipedia can be inaccurate for some information, as it can easily be edited by anyone. Other sites that contain information on the Kitty Cabin case either had to be paid for in order to read the next part of the information or were blocked onto my Wi Fi because they were deemed unsafe. I apologise if anything has been missed. Feel free to message the Crime Crypt on Instagram to put forward any information that you have that was left unsaid. Enjoy. So, yes, that is true. Um, Wikipedia, I find, is very inaccurate sometimes. And there is still quite a lot of information here, actually. Um, we have a lot of theories to get through. We have the background information about the family, and then how they were found and everything. Um... Yeah, so it's- it's gonna be, hopefully, longer as long as the last case we did, like, 45 minutes. Because there's information in here that- and I have a bit more information from, obviously, watching a lot of things about the case also yes you can hear me clicking in the background um yeah but this case is like i said it's very brutal um it's also again unsolved um yeah i'm clicking in the background i apologize but yes this case is disturbing it's very brutal and i will warn you against that in a minute but what's been going on give a quick rundown of what's been going on I've tried to put a list together of cases that we want to cover so at the moment what's in there is the Jack the Ripper case because I know I said that I wouldn't do serial killer cases but I think I talked about this last week we've decided that we're gonna do um one serial killer case per month So next week will be July's serial killer case, and then we'll do one for August. We may potentially do a few more in August, simply because August is our summer holidays, so we will have more time to do research. Um, and I will be helping with research in the summer, because I'll be off, and I won't have to worry about it. So Dee and I will both be doing research. You'll see the difference in our research, because I'm pretty shit at research, I'm not gonna lie. But yes! Um, it's gonna be really fun in the summer. I might even do a few live, um, episodes. You can just join and we can do a few cases on there. Um, I may even do a few Instagram lives on either my account or the Crime Crypt account. I'm not sure yet. I haven't worked it out. But yeah, the summer's going to be full of cases. So if you have any suggestions, please message the Instagram account. It can be my Instagram account because it might be easier to get through to me that way. Uh, they're both in the description, but if you don't know, my Instagram is Eli, and then C-N-T-R-L, so Eli Control, or Central, depending, and the Crime Crypt account is Crime Crypt UK, it is one word, because we're based in the UK. Um, but yeah, we're gonna be covering a lot more cases hopefully in the summer, because we'll have time, maybe two or three a week, because I'll be doing research and Dee will be doing research. And it's gonna be pretty brilliant, actually. We're gonna do lives, we're gonna do- I've repeated this before. I don't care, I'm repeating again. But yeah, it's gonna be good. Um, and again, any suggestions, it can literally be anything. Anything unsolved, or any serial killer cases you want us to cover, they can be solved or unsolved. Message, tell us what you want us to do, because we'll do it. We're willing to really cover anything, even if it's recent. Just tell us, we'll do it. But yeah, I am officially off school. Next, in two weeks, I have two weeks left of school, and then I'm year 11, which is terrifying. I'll be 16 at the end of this year. Uh, It's just terrifying, I think. But yes, it's gonna be a terrifying year, and hopefully we'll have much more cases to do, because I'm gonna stick to the weekend cases, and maybe add one on Wednesdays, so there'll be one on Wednesday, and then one on either Saturday or Sunday, or both Saturday and Sunday. Depending. But yeah, it's gonna be brilliant warning this case does cover extremely brutal murders including the murder of children you have been warned in july of 1979 glenna susan sue sharp who was born march 29 1945 in springfield massachusetts with her five children in tow left her home in connecticut after leaving her abusive husband james sharp she made the decision to relocate to northern california where her brother don was living at the time After arriving in California, she began renting a small trailer, previously occupied by her brother, in the Claremont trailer village in Quincy. The next autumn, she moved to House 28 in the rural Sierra Nevada community of Keddy. The house was much larger than the trailer and became available when Plumas County then-Sheriff Sylvester Douglas Thomas moved out. There, she lived with her 15-year-old son, John on November 16th, 1965, 14-year-old daughter Sheila, 12-year-old daughter Tina, born July 22nd, 1968, and her two younger sons, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5. So, there's six of them living in this house. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a big house, so I'm pretty sure that she shared a room with um, Sheila, then her eldest child, John, had his own room, and then or maybe sheila and I'm, I'm pretty sure she shared a room with someone and then the two younger boys definitely shared a room and maybe sheila and tina shared a room and she shared a room with john i know she shared a room with someone because this house wasn't big it wasn't big for a six for six of them anyway it wasn't big enough for a six member family but they made it work and as it says she left her abusive husband which we'll come back to later because it is one of the theories that he was responsible for this um but yeah she left him in July of 1979 and they moved to California which is pretty far away from Connecticut I'm pretty sure I'm not American correct me if I'm wrong but I'm pretty sure Connecticut and California have a pretty significant gap but yeah so there's six of them living in this house and they moved to Keddie which by the way Keddie only had 66 people living there I'm pretty sure so when they moved in they made that 72. So in terms of suspects, there's not many. 66 people is not a big suspect pool at all. On April 11th, 1981, at the estimated time of 11.30am, Sue, Sheila and Greg drove from their friend's house, the Meek family, to pick up Brick, who had been at baseball trials at Ganser Field in Quincy. They happened upon John and his friend, Dana Hall Wingate, Born February 8, 1964, hitchhiking at the mouth of the canyon from Quincy, California, to Keddie, and picked them up. Then going to Keddie about six miles away, or 9.7 kilometers. Two hours later, around 3:30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, where they may have had plans to visit friends. Around this time, the two were seen in the city's downtown area. So, that's important because it gives us a time of who was where in at the time. That didn't make any sense but you get what i mean so at 11 30 sue sheila and greg um picked up rick who was at baseball tryouts and they also picked up um dana hall wingate who was one of john's friends he was known to have been i'm pretty sure like a troublesome kid but um sue was just happy that john had made a friend so as a mother she didn't really care she was just happy that john had a friend and they drove um back to keddy and then John and Dana hitchhike back to Quincy, where, again, it says they may have had plans to visit friends, but we're not sure. And they were seen in the city's downtown area. So that just gives us a basic background on um, John and Dana and where Sue, Sheila, and Greg were. It just tells us where they were and what they were doing, which is quite important for the case, actually, because it gives us an idea of people must have seen them. So they must have, whoever did this, must have seen them and estimated times and stuff, but yeah. That same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in the neighbouring home, while Sue stayed at home with Rick, Greg, and the boy's younger friend, Justin Smart. Sheila departed the house 28 shortly after 8pm, leaving their mother alone with the younger children. Tina, who'd been watching television at the Seabolt house, returned home to cabin 28 around 9.30pm, after Sheila arrived at the Seabolts to spend the night. So, again, it gives us more context. So, Sheila wasn't in the home. Sheila was not at home when this all happened and Tina got back to Cabin 28 at 9.30 apologies if I slip, um, flip between saying number 28 the house number 28 and Cabin 28 it just depends on how I say it but yes, so Tina has come back and Sheila has gone to stay with the Seaboltz I'm pretty sure she was friends with one of their children I can't remember for sure but it's not- it's necessary but it's not completely necessary because all we really need to know is that sheila was not in the house and people who were in the house were sue rick greg and justin smart and tina that is important and i'm pretty sure yes that is yes so hang on i'm not going to read out this next bit but so sue sharp johnny sharp dana wingate and tina so those are the people that were unfortunately killed i will Give more background on that in a second. That's who was in the house. So people in the house were Sue, Sue Sharp the mother, Johnny the 15-year-old, Johnny's friend Dana, Tina, um, Justin Smart, Rick, and Greg. So yeah, that gives us information about who was there, and it also helps with who might have done it, which we will get to in a minute. Four people were slain in Keddy, three of which were found dead inside cabin 28. Their bodies were discovered by sheila sharp who dissimilar to the rest of her family had slept at a friend's cabin next door sheila recovered the bodies of her mother sue sharp her 15 year old brother johnny sharp and johnny's 17 year old friend dana wingate sheila's 12 year old sister tina was absent from the scene but her dead body would be found at a different time a fact that i'll touch on later so like i said before there were three bodies in the house when she came home that morning her mother, her brother, and her brother's friend. Which, not even, it's just, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine coming home from a sleepover and just walking into that. That would be horrific, I think. And I really feel for Sheila because she's the one who found them. And it's, it's horrific. Um, I'm not gonna read out, I might read out what happened to them. It's, it's brutal. I'll see if I can find what happened to them and I'll try and not dumb it down, but make it less violent because it's horrible. If you've ever looked at the crime scene photos for this, which I have because I find it interesting because it helps with the psychology of a killer. It's, it's not nice, it's horrific and I wouldn't recommend it. The murders of Sue, John and Dana were notably vicious. Two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene, and one of the knives, a steak knife later determined to have been used in the murders, had been bent at roughly 30 degrees. Blood spatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders of Sue, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room. Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down, and gagged with with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which had been secured with tape. She had been stabbed in the chest. Her throat was stabbed horizontally, the wound going through her larynx and nicking her spine. And the side of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BB pellet rifle. John's throat was slashed. Dana had multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled to death. John and Dana suffered blunt force trauma to their heads caused by a hammer or hammers. Autopsies determined that Sue and John died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma, and Dana died by asphyxiation. Oddly, Sheila's two little brothers, Greg, age 5, and Rick, age 10, were found in the cabin in a bedroom, asleep and safe. In the same room, also found asleep and safe, was the boy's friend, Justin Smart. When you look at the scene of the crime, it's difficult to comprehend how they could have slept through such a tragedy. I agree with that completely. I love the fact that Dee has added that in. Because, how do you sleep through such a violent murder? Like, even if they the people had been knocked out beforehand, you would have heard someone in the house and you would have woken up and... Like, yeah, I've been in houses... Like, my house right now, I think, if someone was being murdered on the other side of my house, I wouldn't know because it's just pretty big my house but this cabin wasn't big this cabin was not big at all i'm gonna find a picture of it right now and believe me it was not big at all um god i can't type let me see look um yeah this cabin was not big like if you google cabin 28 like the, the actual house it will show you th- this house was not big at all It was not big enough for someone to have been to be murdering four people, and um, not hear it. I'm not making any sense right now, because I'm going off script. But if you look at this house, it is not big enough for someone to have been killing four people, and the little boys not be able to hear this. It's it's ridiculous. There is there is absolutely no way that those boys have slept through that. There is no way in hell. That those boys slept through what happened and i stand by like yeah, I think, yeah you can be a really deep sleeper if someone's being murdered and they're being they're screaming you're gonna hear them like so yeah it just baffles me that they slept through that they slept through brutal murders It just confuses me. No blame towards the kids. They were like 5, 10, and I don't know how old Justin Smart was, but they weren't old enough to do this. I don't blame the kids or anything, but it doesn't make sense to me that they were slept through it. It just doesn't make sense. Johnny, Dana, and Sue were all tied to some extent by electrical wiring and medical tape. The weapons were uncovered at the scene. A bent steak knife, which was found on the floor, a blood-covered butcher's knife, along with a claw hammer, were both found on a wooden table near the entrance to the kitchen. Blood spatter was found on the walls and ceiling, indicating the style of force applied on the people with the murder weapon. I think I touched on that earlier, but it shows the violence, because bending a steak knife is not easy. Um. And especially when you're stabbing someone like i've never stabbed anyone just put that out there but when you stab someone there is it's really it's really hard to bend like if anyone has a steak knife go and test a theory that if you can bend it please don't do that don't don't ever do that but you can't bending link knives is easy bending forks is easy bending spoons is easy spoons bend when you put them in ice cream but bending a steak knife steak knives are really thick and it's hard to bend them, so I can't comprehend the level of violence it would have taken for someone to bend the steak knife. And like it says, blood spatter was found everywhere. It was—if you look at the crime scene photos, it is everywhere—and it's brutal. It is—it's really horrific. And yeah, whoever did this was violent as hell. And I just don't understand how this person hasn't been caught because someone this violent—you—you you would know of them because when someone's this violent in their day-to-day life then you're gonna question it that's why I'm surprised no one's been caught for this but so yeah like I said it's brutal it's um yeah no it's not nice and I forgot how awful it was but it's just it's violent and it's dehumanising what they did to sue, they gagged her with her own underwear, which is a key point, because she hadn't been, uh, sexually assaulted. They, obviously, when this happens, they do the whole, they do the rape kit, I think it's called, and yeah, she hadn't been assaulted. So, it was just probably done for humiliation, which just adds another level of sadism to whoever did this, and... It's one of the theories that this was done by multiple people, potentially two, maybe three, because one person couldn't have done all this. Unless you surprised John and Dana, you'd only be able to knock one of them out. And these were, uh, John was 15 and Dana was 17. That was easily, they could have taken whoever did this out if it was one person. So, yeah, it's... It's just horrible, and I I hate having to cover this case, but... Yeah. And I think it just... And the fact that it's unsolved pisses me off, because there's surely enough evidence for this to be solved, but... Yeah. It's just horrific. And I still have a bit to read out. And I don't want to, (laughs) because it's horrible. just a quick thing before i continue to read out the information apologies for the very choppy audio edits i started recording yesterday and i finished recording i spent half an hour recording the rest of the podcast we're about to listen to and then my phone froze and didn't save the recording So now I've had to re-record it today, I recorded everything on Saturday the 3rd, which was yesterday for me, but depending on when you're listening it might not be, but I didn't save, so I've had to re-record everything and I've had to re-add all of the um, uh, music to the audio, I had to try and salvage some of it. So the reason it sounds very choppy today, well this weekend, this case, is because my audio didn't save properly and I've had to go back and read out, re-add it to the playlist and then re-add the songs to it. So I apologise thoroughly for that. Let's discuss the body of Tina Sharp, the one Sharp sibling who was missing from the cabin. Tina's skull was finally uncovered due to an unidentified tip ascribed into the police. On the third anniversary of the murders, the skull was found about 50 miles away, in a whole other county. Apart from the timing, which is undeniably questionable, what's genuinely questionable is the point that the caller named the skull as Tina's. But how could the caller have known that based on the skull alone? I have said it before, and I will say it again. The caller was the person who, either one of the people who killed the Sharp family and Dana Wingate, or... They knew about it, and they knew the people who did it, and they heard about it, and they just decided to call the police three years after. Regardless, this is someone who has information, and it's just so infuriating to me that this person got away with that. And they called the police and went, oh yeah, I found Tina Sharp's skull, and they knew it was hers. So that's, it's just completely, this person is the person who killed Either just Tina, or all five of the people that died that night. But, was it five that died that night, or four? I believe it was four, my apologies for that. Four people, my apologies for that. But, it's just, if it, this was the person that did this. Like, I thoroughly believe that this person either killed, helped kill all four of them, or only killed Tina, or... They knew about it, and they were protecting the people who did this. And then on the third anniversary, when the case had been closed already, they were like, oh, I found Tina Sharp's skull. Um, but yes, that is, it's, it was clearly this person. I, I'd stand by that. And now we move on to probably my favourite bit of every case we do. It is the theories surrounding what happened. There was really only one theory because of just... It's just the main theory, and it makes the most sense. Um, however, after I've read out what's on here, I will talk about my own personal theory. And it's a theory that I believe some people agree with. Um, and it's very controversial. Controversial? Controversial. But yes, here is the theory section. There are two main suspects in the Candy Cabin murders case that are currently being investigated. And they are Marty Smart, the father of Justin Smart, one of the boys who was found still alive and well inside the cabin, and Boba Betty, his roommate, who lived two cabins down from the sharps. So immediately we have a reason to believe it's him because the boys in that room weren't killed. You'd think that they would have been. And my theory is, and it's, it's quite sad this, but my theory is that Justin Smart wasn't staying with them that night, then the two younger boys would have been killed. And that's just my own theory. I genuinely believe that if Justin Smart hadn't been in that cabin that night, then Greg and Rick would have been killed just like their mother and brother and brother's friend. Because I believe that it was Marty Smart and Bobo Betty. There's enough evidence to prove it was them. Obviously it's circumstantial, so they cannot be indicted for the murder regardless. But I think it was them, and I think that if his son hadn't been there that night, they would have killed the children. Which is horrific and disturbing and disgusting, but it's very likely. But yeah, that's why. Marty Smart was wedded to Marilyn Smart, the mother of Justin Smart, who is one of the children that was discovered living in good in the cabin. Marty was supposedly an abusive husband. And there are reports that Sue Sharp had been counselling Marilyn on her marriage. When learning about Sue's meddling with his marriage, Marty reportedly went airborne about it. He apparently left for Reno, Nevada soon after the murders. Law enforcement at the time believed that the Slayer was, and I quote, more than one person. Consequently, they threw Marty's roommate, Beau, who was an ex-con, into the case as an accomplice. So, basically, the theory goes that Marty found out that Sue Sharp was counselling his wife because he was abusive and he went flipping mental and he murdered Sue and her children. Um, yeah, it's a solid theory and it's a theory that I subscribe to. And I think that it makes sense that he would, because apparently he was bloody crazy. We'll get into it later about his therapist and everything, but he was fucking mental. So even if he didn't kill them himself, I believe that he had some form of involvement in the murder. Murders, sorry. And it's just, again, it's horrible. First of all, he's a dick because he was abusing his wife. But it's suspicious that he left for Nevada soon after the murders. I'm not sure how long after the murders, but I'm pretty sure it was very soon. That's suspicious as hell. If someone you live near has been murdered violently and you decide to move away within like a couple of weeks when they're still investigating that's suspicious as hell like it makes sense to move away once they've or of like once they've closed the case or once the case has died down a bit you don't move away straight away after discovering your neighbors have been brutally murdered you just don't it puts more suspicion on you i'm not saying people don't move away after people are murdered i'm saying that If someone is murdered in your neighborhood, you don't move away instantly. Because it looks suspicious. Like, if my neighbors were murdered and and my family decided to immediately move away, personally, I think that's a bit suspicious. And I'd expect the police to sort of be like, why are you moving? But it just, yeah, it's suspicious on his part. Like, even if he just moved because of his wife, then that's understandable. But it's still suspicious as hell. In spite of there being much more to this case, at the time, the investigation suspiciously halted there. There was indication that seemingly went undetected, and people of interest that may not have been evaluated correctly. The father of Dana Wingate, the friend of the sharpshooter that was also killed, said in 2001 that the police had, and I quote, stumbled over each other and fouled up the case. And he isn't without help in that way of feeling, as many suspect the police on the case may have been engaged in a cover-up. I agree with him completely um why would you why would you stop investigating why would you stop if four people well at the time they didn't know it was four so if three people are brutally murdered and one of them goes missing you'd immediately you would keep this investigation open for as long as possible investigate all of the possible leads you would evaluate everyone correctly you wouldn't just do a slap-done job of it like I know Keddie was a small town like I know it was a small town of like 60 odd people but that's besides the point you would call in um people to come and help you you would call the FBI like I know the FBI they would deal with this case because this is a quadruple homicide meaning that there is someone very dangerous potentially still living in Keddie you would call someone to come and help you investigate. You wouldn't just use the bare minimum officers you have, and then close the case because there's no more information left. Which is complete bull, by the way, because there was plenty of information there. There were plenty of suspects. There were plenty of people they could have talked to to ask about this, but no. They just decided to close the case there and then. That's suspicious as fuck. Um, apologies my language. This episode, this case deeply, deeply upsets me. Um, and I think that it's just a load of toss, to be honest, like, why would you close this case right there and then? Oh, we don't have enough information, so we're gonna close the case. What?! If my neighbours are murdered, if someone in my town is murdered, I would expect at least a year long... or not a year, I'd expect them to keep the case open and keep, like, a small group of people investigating. I wouldn't expect them to spend, like, a couple of days or weeks on it and then be like, oh, case closed. Like, what? It's just ridiculous. And this is the reason why this is unsolved. Because they stopped investigating. Because there was a cover-up. And you can, like, tell me that I'm being opinionated all you want. There was a cover-up. Because why would they stop investigating so suddenly? Like, they just wouldn't. No good police force would do that. Previous Sheriff Doug Thomas, who was Sheriff at the time of the murder, is suspected and accused of a cover-up in many online theories, which claimed that he was a close friend to Marty Smart at the time. Sheriff Thomas did say that he gave one meeting of guidance to the Smart couple, which took place before the murders, though Marilyn Smart does not remember the meeting with her husband Marty and the Sheriff, but said the two were not friends to her knowledge, though some contemplate Marilyn Smart as a conspirator as well. So, I don't personally agree with the bit about her being a conspirator. I don't think she was. She could have been very easily, and I'm not saying that it's completely out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying that I personally don't think she is, but it's really, really weird that she doesn't remember this meeting, yet two people claim to have had this meeting. That could just be a case of her having bad memory, but you'd remember having a a guidance meeting with the sheriff of your town with your husband about your marriage. You'd remember that, I think. And also, if anyone's wondering, this is a tiny town. I doubt they had a practicing psychologist to sort of counsel couples. That's probably why they went to the sheriff. It would make sense. In small towns they go to people and like people of high positions to talk to when they don't have someone to actually talk to. It makes sense. But yeah, it's weird that she like adamantly does not remember this. And yet her husband and the sheriff were like, no, we had a meeting about the marriage. That's really suspicious. That's all I'm saying. The Former sheriff Doug Thomas not long ago addressed these accusations, and I quote, There was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody 35 years or so later have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems, and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them. I don't like him. Um, <laughs> It's the way that he's phrased this entire thing. Like, when you address an accusation, when anyone addresses an accusation, whether it be bullying or assault or a cover-up or anything like that, you would expect them to use formal language, and you would expect them to sort of address them in a proper way no but instead he makes people who think this seem stupid by using language it's the way that he says and suddenly now everybody 35 or so years later have figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt it's laughable is what it is it's it sounds like he's just trying to make everyone shut up and not accuse the officers but i mean most people are going to accuse the officers for closing the case when there was no need to, there was no what, reason to, they didn't have they didn't even try and investigate, like like they just didn't like it's like they didn't give one, which which obviously leads into the idea that, oh, this was a cover-up, and I mean, yeah, you could use the argument that oh well, they were new people in the town. no, they weren't because they moved to Ketty. ...in July of 1979. And... ...they were found... ...they were killed... ...on April 11th... ...oh no, sorry... ...um... ...yes... ...April 11th or April 12th... ...in 1981. They'd been in Keddie for three years. Almost three years. So it doesn't make sense to me that... ...they could use the argument that... ...oh, well they were new in the town, so maybe they didn't care as much. Bullshit! Um... Yeah, there was a cover up. You there. You can have a different opinion. That's completely fine. You can think there wasn't. That is completely fine. But I think there was a cover up. And yeah, that's, that's all. Um, that was definitely, there was either some form of cover up, either one of the officers covered something up or all of them. But someone covered something up. And that's why this case is unsolved. In 2013, the case was revived by existing Sheriff Greg Hagwood and investigator Mike Gamberg, both of whom had personal ties to the victims of the case. Here's what Sheriff Hagwood had to say about the police cover-up theory. And I quote, It has brought to light some amazing timelines, histories, and what some may call coincidence. Others may look at it more accusingly. I don't put anything outside the realm of possibility. That's how you address those accusations. And he's actually doing something. Both Greg Hagwood and Mike Gamberg work tirelessly on this case. Hats off to them. They're doing an amazing job. Um, They've uncovered incredible things from this case that haven't been uncovered in the past 40 flipping years. You know, because this case has been unsolved for 40 years and I have every hope that this case will be solved. Because there are cases from like more than 40 years ago that have been solved through good police work so I am of the idea that this is going to be solved maybe not for the next 20 maybe 30 years but I hope this case is solved within my lifetime because if anything just for justice for the family for Dana Wingate's family and for the remaining Sharp family members so I think that they're doing an amazing job. I really do. Greg Hagwood and Mike Gamberg are doing an incredible job to solve this case once and for all. And I mean, hats off to them. I mean, they're amazing. Honestly, they're doing more than anyone has done in 40 years. Well, they opened the case in 2013, so 32 years, but they've been, they're doing an amazing job. They've been working tirelessly and it's, it's incredibly inspiring. And I think that You know what, they're going to solve this case, I really do think that, because they actually give a shit, unlike Doug Thomas, who didn't give a shit. (laughs) Let's be fair. The initial advancement occurred when Gamberg formed boxes of case reports and evidence from the case that had been pushed aside. What he uncovered was a document written by Marty Smart to his wife, Marilyn, reportedly written soon after the murders. It reads, and I quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four other people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great. What else do you want? Marilyn doesn't remember obtaining the message. Nonetheless, she did identify her ex-husband Marty's handwriting. He confessed to the murders. I mean, at this point, he's just stacking up the evidence against himself. He confessed to the murder. Like, yeah, he may have been bonkers, but he still confessed to killing four people. I'm gonna sneeze. Hold on. (laughs) Sorry about that. But yes, he confessed to the murders, and... I mean, at this point, you can just indict him for the murders like I don't understand why he hasn't been indicted he confessed on two separate occasions by the way um I have the second one later on but he confessed I mean there's nothing else really to it potentially you could say that um Bo Betty wasn't part of it because Marty never says he was but he confessed to the murder of four people bearing in mind they didn't know At the time that four people were dead because they thought Tina was just missing because she wasn't inside the house but he confessed he says four people's lives meaning that potentially he did kill the four people and he did take Tina away 50 miles away and buried her there so it's just suspicious and I think that he's definitely either he definitely did it or he's involved very deeply in this case the subsequent growth was something also found in the boxes of case files. Gamberg found the tape-recorded anonymous phone call that tipped off the police of the site of the remains of Tina Sharp. The audio of that 911 call is now being assessed with audio suspects looking for a match, although it's worth stating that the tape was never voiced analysed at the time. His existing investigator, Sheriff Hagwood, on that tape, and I quote, why that sat in a sealed evidence envelope? Never opened. I don't have the answer to that. But we have it now. So they have the tape of the 911 call. For anyone wondering why every 911 call is recorded, and if it's significant, and if it leads to an actual um, crime rather than just someone pranking the police, then they will keep it for evidence, meaning that this tape is the actual evidence against whoever tipped off the police that if they are able to identify whoever called in then they can talk to them and ask how the hell they knew it was tina because you you can't identify someone just on their skull like yeah you can tell if they're an adult or a child based on the head shape and everything but he couldn't have known or she i'm not sure who it was but this person couldn't have known that it was tina sharp based on her skull because this is three years later so she would have completely decomposed at this point it would have literally just been bones so also it's suspicious that they were digging like i'm assuming that she was buried somewhere so i think it's just highly suspicious that this person was like digging and just found her skull and then was like oh i found tina sharp's skull like how would you know what the hell it's weird it's really weird the third enhancement came from Gamberg conversing with Marty Smart's ex-therapist in Reno, Nevada. Seemingly, Marty had pled guilty to the murders in a session. The therapist reportedly told Gamberg that even he was stunned that the investigators at the time of the murders hadn't used a confession against him. So, for anyone who doesn't know, therapists have an oath of confidentiality, I believe it's called, meaning that when a client is alive you cannot reveal anything that they've said inside therapy unless it is um something that may potentially harm themselves or someone else so if they're planning a murder then I think they have the right to tell the police they don't have to but if you they can if someone confesses to a murder or a or a theft or a rape or something in a therapy session then the therapist cannot reveal that information to the police which I think is just wrong. I think it's like, why? Why? That's just ridiculous. But Marty Smart confessed to all four murders in therapy session. So we have two confessions now, one written down to his wife and one inside therapy, meaning that he most likely did this. I'm of the idea that he 97% committed these murders because there is the potential that he's just flipping crazy and is confessing to get his wife back. But either way, I believe he had something to do with this. There is the very slim chance that he didn't, but I'm of the belief that he did this, or at least helped do this, or at least helped cover this up for whoever did this. The fourth development was the breakthrough that a man had found a steel blue-handled claw hammer near a pond near Keddie. The hammer equaled the description of one that Marty had informed the investigators he'd lost. As of late November twenty sixteen, it was being tested for DNA or blood residue as a potential further murder weapon. So, I don't think I t- I don't think I talked about this earlier, but he said that he lost a steel blue handled claw hammer, meaning that oh, it just it just irritates me that he hasn't been indicted for this. Like he's dead now, I believe, but I'm gonna very quickly Google this. I'm Googling a lot in this. Marty Smart. Um, Marty Smart died of cancer in June, 2000. So he's not alive. And even if he did do this, he won't be punished for it. But I think it's very important that if he did do this, then people know that he did this and that he is done for this and Just for for justice, I think. And because there are so many people who want this case closed. There are so many people that that want this case to be, you know, closed. That want this justice for Sheila. And I think that that's very important. So, yeah, I'm rambling, I think. I think I'm rambling. (laughs) But, yes, it's very important and it's... Yeah, I just think Marty did it, and that's all. (laughs) This is Sheriff Hagwood's view on the status of the case, and I quote, There are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are, and I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact, or they have first-hand information. It's worth mentioning that Hagwood said that there were at least six of these people of concern, all of which are alive. So, I was just doing some more research, and apparently they are extremely close, apparently, and they found DNA of someone from the crime scene that is still alive. They are still analyzing it, but there is potentially someone who could get done for this um which is just amazing, and I love it so much. I love the fact that they're going to solve this case because i oh, i just I want justice for Sheila like I don't know how to explain how much justice I want for her but I just, yeah, I want her to be able to know what happened to her family and I want this case to just be solved so that Sue, Johnny, Dana and Tina can rest in peace In regard to the murderers being Marty Smart and Boba Betty, Hagwood stated this and I quote It's a theory that we are working to the degree possible to conclude or dismiss there's a disproportionate amount of evidence and information that tends to point in that direction. So, what we know from that is that Sheriff Hagwood and Mike Gamberg believe that Marty Smart and Bobo Bo Betty did this. I also believe that. Um, the information, it's just the information, the evidence, like he said, is disproportionate. There is so much evidence that ties them to this and so much evidence that, that sort of... Um, says that, yeah, they did this, but because they, in the 50s, 50s? 80s at the time, didn't fucking investigate properly. Now, we're probably going to have to wait several years before someone finally comes forward and says that they know who did it. Or it might never be solved, which makes me so upset. And... Ugh... It's the cases like this that make me not want to do this podcast because they're the ones that make me so upset because it's just, they could have solved this so easily and they didn't because they just let the crime scene be contaminated and they they didn't investigate properly and that, that's the reason this case isn't solved. As of now, not one person has been charged. However, you can rest easy understanding that Hagwood and Gamberg resume to dig deeper on what genuinely happened that one night in Cabin 28. One finishing idea from Sheriff Hagwood. There is not an expiration date on homicides, and to the extent that we have surviving siblings and family members, it is our fundamental obligation to them to understand who did this and why. She the Sharp, one of the surviving family members, said this of Hagwood. Finally, I have someone who cares. In the last three years, he's done more than the Plumas County Sheriff's Office has done in the previous 32. So that is the end of the theories we have written down. There is other theories. For example, there's a theory that this was done by um, Justin Sharp? Jason Sharp? He's a dick. He abused his wife, so I don't really care about his name. James Sharp, that was it. But there's a theory that he did this, which is possible. He could have wanted revenge on Sue and his kids for leaving. There's also a theory that says that Marilyn was the the only person did this and that Marilyn was the one that killed them. Um, there's quite a few people that believe that, actually. Um, there's also a theory, which I don't have open right now, but I can find it. It's on Reddit, that Sheila Sharp did this. Um, it's a very horrible theory, I think, because, like, why would you say that? Why would you, why would you be like, oh, it was Sheila, she killed her family, like, what? It's just horrific. Like, you wouldn't, oh, I just, I don't agree with that theory at all. Um, it, it upsets me that someone could think this 14-year-old girl could kill her entire family, or at least, her mother, her brother, and her little sister, as well as her brother's friend. Like, it just... Why? Why would why would you... Why? Why would you ever think that she could do this? There is no reason to ever think that Sheila killed her family, or had anything to do with this, because she's investigating with the police. She's helping to try and solve the case. So... It's just... Ugh... It's just annoying. Like like I understand the theory that Marilyn did this because there's a very 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 high chance that Marilyn did this. But at the same time, I don't think it's true because why would she kill them? In theory, she was being abused by her abused by her husband. She would kill her husband, not not the woman who was counseling her and her children. But Oh, this is interesting. No, it is thought that John and Dana walked in on the murders, as they had hitchhiked into town earlier that day. The time of their return is unknown. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Which would explain why there was no... So when you look at murder scenes, you look at everything you can, and the coroner reported that there were, um, what are they called? Like, struggle marks on... Um, Sue Sharp, meaning that she struggled and she tried to get free but there were none on Um. Oh, uh, the boys, sorry I'm not good at talking today but there were none on Johnny and Dana meaning that there is very potential that they walked in and they sort of saw what was happening to their mother and then the perpetrators knocked them out and then killed them but that is really that's a really interesting point, that. Um what else is on here? Not much actually, just what we've talked about. Oh, and also I didn't talk about this, but Marty Smart and Bobo Betty were um caught by Marilyn burning stuff the morning or at least the before the bodies had been discovered oh they were burning things in the in the stove like not a stove like the like a fire stove thing you know what i mean like a fire thing but it's not like a fire they were caught burning things um which could be evidence they could have been burning their clothes that were covered in the blood of the smart um of the sharp family sorry i'm off script completely now i'm looking at reddit so i trust reddit completely by the way if anyone ever wants to look at anything um about cases then I would suggest looking at Reddit. But yeah, Reddit is a very good source and it's where I'm looking right now to see if I can find anything, um, on anything we haven't touched on because there's so much about this case that 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 could be investigated and Uh, Marty, Bo and Marilyn did in fact go into the bar on the night of the murders. They returned home once, and then the men went back out to the bar later in the night without Marilyn. As for the father of Sue's children, he was no longer in their lives. Sue was basically kicked out of her husband's home, forced to take all the kids with her, and relocate on her own. At first, they lived in a trailer in an unrelated area, but later moved into the Keddy campground because it was larger. As far as I know, all past lovers of Sue were clear of suspicion. She was described as a private woman who loved her children. The only person in Keddie she could have been considered close to was Marilyn Smart. So, the theory that um, the husband did it, it's very, very possible. But, um, like it says, he was cleared of the murders because he was completely out of their lives and he didn't know where they were. So, Marty was... Oh, this is interesting. Marty was having an affair with Sue, Marilyn found out, and with Beau they entered the unlocked cabin at 1.15am. Tina screamed, waking the neighbours, and she and Dana died first. Sue was executed last, after being forced to watch the executions of Dana and her kids. The other boys were kept alive because they couldn't kill Justin, they just forced him to participate instead. Jesus Christ! Okay, so... Yeah, how did Tina die? that's very interesting. Um, I just want to know how she. Di- no, I don't want to know how she died because it's horrible. But I, I really want to know because. Um. Oh, I didn't say that's really helpful. That. Um. But yes, so that's a good theory too. That she, that Marilyn killed them because. <sighs> Marty was having an affair. I'm literally rambling right now. I'm so sorry. But I'm li- I'm on Reddit right now looking for stuff about the Caddy Cabin murders because I want to add as much information to this as I can. I'm gonna quickly stop recording here and then carry on recording when I find something. Okay, so here's something. Apparently Marty was friends with a police officer. Maybe not the sheriff, but he was friends with the police officer apparently. And that's apparently very well known. So apparently, the theory goes, that... Um... Ooh, hang on. Someone said they solved the case. Interesting, very interesting. Let's look at this. Um... Ooh... Yeah, the DNA was found at the scene matches someone who was alive. A uh, lack of fingerprints and unidentif- unidentifiable DNA left at the scene by the perpetrators has stymied investigating officers... Um, where is it? Is this just a fucking clickbait title? Because I will fucking kill someone if it is. Maybe I shouldn't say that when talking about a, a murder case. Um, um. No, it doesn't actually say who they think it is. Great, love that. Love clickbait titles. Okay, here we go. I put the info, this is from someone on Reddit, so this isn't me, but this is someone on Reddit. Uh, I put the info on my form a couple years back, Justin Smart Lullison. His DNA was found on tape used to bind the VX. The VX, other the victims. The location provides direct involvement. Years back, I said they were all awake, and it's nuts to believe otherwise. Tina's screams woke the neighbours and brought John and Dana running from the basement. Yet idiots still think the boys in the next room slept till morning. Yep. I agree with that bullshit evidence showed they hid in the closet. Oh, that's interesting. Sue was having an affair with Marty. Loon found out. Sue was the sole target and for the because in the book and for the oldest cause in the book, Love Triangle, Loon, Marty and Beau were the primary killers. As I said years back when I determined, many wounds were found part of post-mortem staging. Some wounds appeared to be made by kids. I'd also said the kids were threatened, even forced to get dirty. DNA proves at least Justin was forced to get involved. Forced at 12, but his years-long lies is a willing participation. And I want him to die in prison. Jesus. Others involved are DJ Lake, Tony Garadakis, A Couple Meeks, Sheriff Dog Thomas, Don Stoy, Rod Stachrona, Prince Albert Krim, who the fuck is that? Harry Bradley... A list of dirty Ellie leads up the chain to Bush. Oh. F- what is in like George Bush? I don't know who the fuck they mean. But this is interesting. Who the f- flip is Prince Albert Krem? They an actual prince because Uh was the victim in God Save the Prince. Um Okay, I'm gonna just whatever. Um, they are actually really good at this. So, um, yeah, I'm rambling again. I apologize. I agree with this person. I think the case was so poorly investigated and covered up. We'll never know for certain. Um, yeah, that's very true. I think that too. They didn't investigate properly and now... Um, whatever happened with the DNA they found on items from the crime scene? The DNA was said to be a match to a still living suspect, but then nothing else has been mentioned since. The DNA is Justin's, and it is in a location proving his involvement. Oh shit, okay. Um... Okay, hang on, so let's click on this person's link again, because I think I just didn't scroll down far enough. Um... Okay, well I can't find it on there, so I'm just gonna type in Justin Smart. Justin Smart Keddy. Suspect. Um There's not much on it, but yeah, apparently the there is DNA. On the tape, the medical tape that was used to bind the victims that was his, which is just disturbing. Um, But like that person said, even if he was forced to participate, the fact that he stayed quiet about it means that he is now a willing participant, meaning that if they prove it was him, he probably can be done. Which is just horrible, like, I get that if he was forced. There we go, the announcement of a DNA match. Let's go. Um, I know what it was, I just want to find it there. Okay, um. Yeah, so in April 2018, Gamberg stated that the DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect, which was Justin. Which is just horrific. Um, but yeah. So whilst he may have been forced to participate as a child, the fact that he stayed quiet about it means that he was a very willing participant, and we're not all very willing, but he's willing now because he doesn't want to get done for it. God, I've ranted for so long. If you've sat through this entire thing, uh, thank you. (laughs) Okay, but finally, this is the end of the episode. After me ranting for longer than I should have, Are we officially done. Oh my god! I just ranted for like fifteen minutes about fucking Reddit. I am so sorry, but yes, that is finally the end of the podcast. If you sat through this entire thing, thank you. Um, that means the world to me. Um, as for this case, I personally think it's going to be solved very soon. With the, uh, with finding out literally just now, actually a suspect. I think that they are very close to discover that they found his DNA on the tape. And on, like, the weapons. I mean, call him in. Ask him. But, yes, it's it's very disturbing, that bit of information. And I wish I didn't know it, but now I do. If there's anything you think we missed, please either message me on Instagram or message our official Crime Crypt UK on Instagram. I'm not going to read them out again. I've already done it, like, twice in this episode. But they are in the description of the podcast on Spotify, and I believe on every platform it's on. So wherever you're listening, you should have access to the um, Instagram names. Um, what, if you want us to cover anything else, I think I said all this at the beginning, so if I'm repeating myself, just fucking skip this bit. But if you want us to cover anything else, just again, message. I may also add our business email to the description, just because if you want to email, that might be easier. But next week, we are covering the Jack the Ripper case. Possibly a two-parter, maybe a three-parter, because I literally, I've made the PowerPoint for that. um, And it is, how many slides is it? Let's have a look. It's a lot. And I'm also presenting it tomorrow in my history class, because my teacher asked me to. Let's have a look. How many slides is it? I'm pretty sure it's a lot. Yeah, it's like 40 slides. Um, That might take... That might take about, that might take two episodes, which I think is fine. That's fine by me. I can record one on Saturday and one on Sunday. Or maybe part one on Wednesday and part two on one day of the weekend. It just depends on how I feel. But until next week, I have been your host, Elijah, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.